Good morning. All right. So um, I have several announcements to make. Um, that uh, first of all, you know about the ordinary life. Christmas happy hour party on the 20th. Immediately after this time today, Matt Russell and I will be um, dialoguing about the film American Heretics. I think I have that in here. I got that. Is that up there? There you go. And um, Matt and I have decided uh, because of the response that our dialoguing has gotten, that we are going to be co-teaching Ordinary Life once a month starting in January. Yeah. It, it's like that guy, who, American guy who went to Milan and sang in the opera, and after he had done this aria, somebody stood up in the audience and said, sing it again. And so he sang this really difficult, compelling aria all over again. And when he had finished, completely spent, this guy stood up in the, car, in the audience and said, sing it again. <laughs> and the guy said, I can't. And the man said, yes, yeah, sing it again until you get it right. <laughs> so that's what Matt and I said, until you get it right. Also, I have had maybe um, six or eight people say today, uh, when are you going to show the American Heretics film again? <clears throat> that was last week. <laughs> so I said I'll put it in the summary that goes out. So a number of people have asked, will you show it again? And the answer is yes. We will show it again after Thanksgiving. So we don't have a sign-up sheet today. I think that's gone. But um, you can let me know after the break here when Holly and I finish. Um, and I'll make sure you get it. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. And hello to the pajama people and the wine and cheese people. So uh, I take full responsibility for the title of this class mm -hmm. today, Choosing a Better Way to Live. So uh, I want to tell you about how that um, came about. Um, in reading Richard Rohr and in reading some other things, um, I have wanted to take teachings of, of Jesus, about Jesus, in a deeper direction than uh, we have been going. I don't think there's anybody here who is going to um, become a Shane Claiborne. You know about Shane Claiborne. And I, that's not an expectation I have for anybody here, that you're going to go off and live a, a truly communal life in Philadelphia in the ghetto. Shane Claiborne, when we invaded Iraq, went to Iraq, very difficult kind of journey, just to say to the Iraqi people as the bombs were coming down, we're not all like this. So I don't expect anybody's going to do that. But I do think that it is worth our while and attention to try to figure out what it, it means for us to follow Jesus uh, 
in a way that makes a difference in the culture where we live. I borrowed a phrase from uh, Jim Wallace. I wish I'd thought of this. And Wallace said, don't go right, don't go left, go deep. And uh, that's what this particular series is something that, that I want to want to try to do. Um, I'm concerned about the divisiveness in our culture. And, and I am currently using a couple of things as resources. Uh, Holly has read part of this book, too. I'm not through reading this book. Um, Christ in Crisis by Jim Wallace. Jim Wallace is probably one of the most outspoken evangelical people who proudly wear the title evangelical in our culture today. A lot of people are not willing to do that because the word evangelical has been so hijacked by the far religious right that uh, they're not willing to do that. But, but Wallace is willing to do that. And so Wallace, who is the animating energy behind the Reclaiming Jesus document, which we will read part of today, uh, is certainly influencing what I'm saying and what Holly's saying. And another book that I have started rereading, which is Karen Armstrong's book, 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life. Karen Armstrong is the person who's the animating energy behind the Charter for Compassion. And I think I said either in an email or maybe I said it last week that um, a lot of people hear 12 Steps title books and they kind of dismiss them because a lot of those books appear to be quite shallow. Uh, this is not a shallow book. If you read what Karen Armstrong, anything that she writes, but if you read this, you're going to be hip deep in some really fascinating uh, religious history about how, for example, what we call the golden rule evolved what I call the evolution of right religion when it happened all over the world. I mean, at the, at the same time in places where people did not have any contact with each other, there was this religious spiritual awakening about trying to live, not doing to other people what you would not want to have done to you. Just it's, it's non-sectarian. You can practice that no matter what what your uh, religion is. So um, I, I recommend um, both of those. So we're going to go for peace, love, joy, patience, humility, and um, try to be orthodox. Or not orthodox. And orthodox in our orthodoxy? Not orthodox. Maybe. Uh, Heretical. Yeah. That is what the word choose. That's why I came up with the word choose. Mm -hmm. Choosing. Pause. A better way of living. Mm -hmm. Get it? We get stimulated by something that happens and we respond like that. And I'm wanting to put a hyphen or a pause between the stimulation and the response. So choosing a better way of living. Choosing is a better way to live if we can stay conscious of the kinds of choices that we can make and we don't just react reflexively, which I know no one does. 
None of you ever gets irritated while driving your car. You never call that jerk a jerk. <laughs> never react that way. So that's where I am mm -hmm. with this. Mm -hmm. I think that pause is really a good definition for mindfulness is just the, the pause we take between stimulus and response or the pause we take between um, being triggered and breath, the pause we take between breath and speaking, that there's always a choice about how we pause. Um, but I love this idea about this right to choose. One of the things I think you wrote is it's true that there's no one way to interpret Jesus, right? As we've seen with the many, many different spiritual interpretations of Jesus. But I do believe that Jesus was unequivocal about the necessity of aligning with the poor and the oppressed, those who are underrepresented. I don't think there's a way around this. No, <clears throat> I want to put this in context. So um, I need to get this where I can see it better. Mm -hmm. You can uh, get black I can't. if you want. <clears throat> what was Jesus concerned about in context? Uh, he didn't have us in mind. I'm sorry to tell you that. But the New Testament, the book of Revelation, the book of anything in what we call the Bible was not written with us in mind. I know that people try to figure out things from the Bible that are applicable to us. And there have been many instances over the years where people have known to the minute when Jesus was coming back. So far, none of those have quite panned out. All these predictions about the end of time. But here's what I think Jesus was about. What Jesus was concerned about was a society that was ruled by violence, domination, and greed. That's our culture. This is our culture. We are ruled by violence, by people who want to be in power and control the lives of others. And the religion of our culture is consumerism. It's greed. It's get as much as you possibly can. I don't know how many of you read Richard Rohr's um, meditation for today, but it is against capitalism. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and you can I could just sense the recall of a lot of people when they read Richard Rohr this morning about thinking, oh, no, this not, not this. Mm -hmm. So much like burning. Another thing that Jesus was concerned about was about people who felt ho hopeless about changing anything. It's a line I hear a lot when people are talking about the current political circumstances. I can't do anything about it. I don't have the power to change anything. I'm not trying. I'm sitting out. I'm not watching the... Impeachment, impeachment stuff, I'm not doing anything. It's hopeless. I hear that a lot. Jesus was concerned his teaching speak to that sense of hopelessness about changing anything. Jesus was also concerned about people who were fear, fearful of God because the religion of his day had set it up that way. You were unclean if you didn't meet certain rules that the rabbis had set up. 
And um, if you were not part of the community then, it meant an incredible thing. You were ostracized, and your life depended on actually being accepted by part of the community. But you couldn't be unless the priest said you were in. And they wouldn't say you were in unless you went and sought forgiveness from them. And they wouldn't give you forgiveness unless you gave them some money. Mm -hmm. Our pledge campaign is coming up in the church, by the way. <laughs> I thought I would mention that in oh, case goodness. you're interested in getting in. <laughs> Jesus is very concerned about religious leadership being unfaithful to their calling. Again, look at the media. Look at the religious people in our culture who have access to the biggest megaphones in our culture. And you determine whether you think they are being faithful to the mission and ministry of Jesus. It's a simple thing to figure out. And Jesus was interested in creating a social, commercial, and political interaction that clearly mirrored God's presence among people. This is where Jesus is coming from. And so as we begin to get into both Karen Armstrong's stuff and into Jim Wallace's stuff today, specifically about issues of racial justice, uh, keep these things um, in mind. So I want to read to you. Is this okay? Yeah. If I read um, what Jim Wallace's document uh, has. And you can go online, uh, Ordinary Life, under resources on the main menu, and you can find both the Reclaiming Jesus document and the Charter for Compassion document. They're both there. Or you can just go to reclaimingjesus.org, or you can go Charter for Compassion, either one. This is the first one. We believe each human being is made in God's image and likeness. Those are two key words. Image and likeness are not the same thing. We can come back to that. That image and likeness confers a divinely decreed dignity, worth, and God-given equality to all of us as children of the one God who is the creator of all things. Now, you might not agree after hearing me for a while with all of the language of this because you notice that God is mentioned as a, as a source and agent. One of the lines I loved about uh, that came from the heretic movie mm -hmm. is um, when um, the minister said, in my theology, God doesn't do anything, mm -hmm. but without God, nothing happens. Yeah. It's good theology. Yeah. Okay. Racial bigotry is a brutal denial of the image of God, the imago Dei, and some of the children of God. Our participation in the global community of Christ absolutely prevents any toleration of racial bigotry. Racial justice and healing are biblical and theological issues for us and are central to the mission of the body of Christ in the world. We give thanks for the prophetic role of the historic black churches in America when they have called for a more faithful gospel. Therefore, we reject the resurgence of white nationalism and racism in our nation on many fronts, including at the highest levels of political leadership. We, as followers of Jesus, must clearly reject the use of racial bigotry for political gain that we have seen. 
In the face of such bigotry, silence is complicity. In particular, we reject white supremacy and commit ourselves to help dismantle the systems and structures that perpetuate white preference and advantage. Further, any doctrines or political strategies that use racist sentiments, fears, or language must be named as public sin, one that goes back to the foundation of our nation and lingers on. Racial bigotry must be antithetical for those belonging to the body of Christ because it denies the truth of the gospel we profess. Okay. Do you want to share your, your turn? Okay. <laughs> um, one of the things I've been reading a little bit more about is liberation theology. And um, this, yeah, you know mm-hmm. a lot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think one of the concepts is, is we don't have to be poor or an immigrant or black or brown in order to think as if, right? Like can we, can we think as if we were? And I think this is the, the, the real teaching of Jesus. And as I understand liberation theology so far, it's, not, it's kind of about liberating God from this old white guy, sky God, um, who sometimes condemns you and sometimes allows you into heaven and sometimes doesn't, um, and bringing God among the people. So I also kind of think Jesus was a liberation theologist mm-hmm. before that was a term. James Cone, I think this comes after your video, maybe we'll have to come back to that, is a, is a black liberation theologist who I read with Dr. Cleve Tinsley, who was in this room with me over the summer. He, I'm taking a class with him that I love, and he, James Cone writes, there can be no God that is not aligned with those who are oppressed. God's activity is on behalf of the oppressed. Christian theology is a theology of liberation. It is unreservedly with those who are humiliated and abused. Black theology is inherently a theology of liberation. In order to be a Christian theology, white theology must cease being white and become black theology. What I take this to mean is not that God is against or doesn't love white folks, but that God does not love oppression, that God does not love any color, any representation of oppression in in a loving world. So any representation of God as oppressive or anyone who is representing God and also being oppressive is not God. Whiteness doesn't have to, does not have to represent oppression, and that's, I think, where choice comes in. How do we choose to represent a love of people, a love of the world? For me, this is imaginative, imagining what love can look like, imagining what God can look like among us. I think, again, this comes to this, the image of God being present in, in all things, in all people. Another person I've read is Mary Daly. Some of you might know her. She's a Catholic nun who, at the same time James Cone was writing about black liberation theology in the 60s and 70s, was writing about women's liberation theology. And she, she says, God is a verb. And I, I love that idea that God is a verb. God is, is doing. 
that goes to that quote, my, the God that I believe in does not do anything. But it also goes back to my baseball analogy. The baseball doesn't do anything by itself, right? You, you can't look at the baseball and expect it to throw itself. But you interact with it, and the baseball works magic. That's the verb, the, the, the acting part of God. So this idea that God's not an independent agent, but something we're engaged with as we are engaged with one another, as we are engaged with issues that concern each other in terms of poverty or oppression or racial injustice. It's not, it, this, I think one of the things that can be hard about talking about injustice, especially racial injustice, is that it, it can bring up shame and guilt. And I don't think that serves us. I don't think shame and guilt serves us. We, I was talking with Bill this last week about this idea of beneficial regret, right? Beneficial regret is when we can feel grief about something, when we can feel grief about the way things are and wanting them to be better. And holding that grief then opens up a space where we can act on behalf of things being better. So to me, I think some of this is about learning how to sit with that regret or that grief. Mm -hmm. um, in her book, In the Death of God the Father, Mary Daly imagines that to me, and I love this quote, it means rising, a rising woman consciousness and the consequent breakthrough to conscious communal participation in God the verb. This involves a fall into freedom. Since this fall is redemptive and healing, it signals the arrival of new being, one that is not dependent on Christ as savior, but as an outgrowth of Jesus, an advocate for the poor and the underrepresented. Um, I think this, Jackie, when you read Jackie Lewis the other day, yeah. and she talked about uh, a theo theology of love, this is like doing God, right? Doing God is doing love, and that's the verb that God is. Uh, I've used the word God a lot because in some ways I kind of want to just really reframe God as not image, not as person, not as um, out there, but between, you know, this space in between and how do we act through it. You know, none, none of these are new ideas. No, no, uh, no, ooh, no. I just quoted two people who precede me by years and years. Well, uh, and, and yeah. you mentioned James Cone. <laughs> mm -hmm. When I went to Union in 1967 or 8, mm -hmm. he was a professor there. Mm -hmm. And I heard him give the first of his book that he had just published called Liberation Theology. Mm -hmm. And one of the places that he went to, to, to experience what liberation theology was about was South America. Mm -hmm. Because there was a struggle there for the liberation of people, people. that was mm -hmm. much more on the front burner than it was here in America right. at that time. Right. Also, Paul Tillich. Mm -hmm. Paul Tillich said, God is not a being. Right. God is being itself. And, and all of the people who fall into the category of process theology are in the category of seeing God as a verb. Mm -hmm. Because when we change our understanding of whatever we mean when we use that word God, mm -hmm. in some God changes in our experience. Right. 
of that, right? Yeah. So if we move, if we move God in our thinking from being um, a white guy in the sky who occasionally takes a stick <laughs> and stirs things on the earth, if we change that to no, 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 we are right now in God's heart. If that's a metaphor, that's okay with you. That changes God. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, the book that that I handed to you by Brian Swim, the the Hidden Heart of the Cosmos. Yeah. The idea is also that just in the nature of being, the nature itself, the cosmos itself, is bent towards connection. We, we could not have, if we didn't have dark matter, we would fly apart. If we didn't have a proton, a neutron, and an electron, we wouldn't have energy, right? So those three things must connect, must come together in order for everything else mm-hmm. to be. Uh, Cleve reframes something that uh, Cornell West, I think, is known to say, but um, Cleve says he came up with it first. He says, justice is what love looks like in public. Wow. Mm-hmm. The woman whose video I was going to show, we don't have to do that. We can. Yeah. Um, her name is Jane Nelson, is that right? I think. Yeah. Is that right? I can't blocking. remember. My, my memory <laughs> no pop is, quizzes, please. My memory is not what it was. Uh-huh. I, I got an email from somebody the other day that said that he had reached that part in life where he goes into the next room and doesn't remember what he went for. But the other day he did. He went in the next room and knew what he was there for. It was the bathroom, but he still <laughs> he knew why he was there. Yeah, yeah. So she has she has a couple of exercises. One that we could show very briefly about helping us be aware of our role in systems that either are or are not just that we had nothing to do with. We just inherited. We inherited right? a lot. And and one of the one of the phrases that people can get reactive mm-hmm. about is the phrase called white privilege. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so she has this exercise that helps people gain some experiential knowledge about white privilege. Oh, it's sure. called, uh, take, what? Sure. Sure. Well, it's, uh, that's, that was not what I was going to talk about, oh. but I can show that. Oh, okay. Go, sorry, I interrupted. No, that's okay. We can we can show <laughs> that. Let's, let's yeah. do this. Can you all see the screen without our moving? We forgot about that. Okay, movie. it's not going to yeah, play. Okay. All right. So yeah. what, what she is saying uh, to a group of people like you is that how many of you <coughs> would be willing to be treated as a black person is in this society? Would you hold up your hand? Two. <laughs> and nobody, no, in, the, in that particular crowd, no hands went up. Mm-hmm. And she said, maybe you didn't understand the question. So she repeats the question. How many of you would be willing to be treated as a black person in society, in our society, is treated? Hold up your hand. And then she says, that just shows you know what's going on. And it's not okay for you, but it's okay for others. And she also has this exercise called, I think it's called, Step Away from the Wall. You know this one? I don't think I do. So she gets people in a room, 
And she has them all stand against the wall. <clears throat> and, and she says, um, if you were born in an all-white neighborhood, take one step against, away from the wall. Mm-hmm. If, you went, if you grew up in a community where there was a white school and a black school and you went to the white school, take a step away from the wall. And she just goes through all of these things. Like if, you're, if your parents were willing to send you to college, take a step away from the wall. Or could, not willing. I think a lot of parents are willing to, but can't. Mine couldn't wait. Get out of here. So I keep coming back in the conversations that you and I have had is in talking about any of the things that Jim Wallace talks about. How do we talk about those in ways that um, don't cause people to feel guilty and ashamed and hopeless? Mm -hmm. And also, how do we talk about those in ways that empower people to answer the question about, okay, I know this, what do you want me to do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're looking to you. Okay. (laughs) Um, I do think the pause is helpful. The pause of contemplation, of inquiry, of thinking, of reading. There's a lot of wisdom out there on how do we do human better? (laughs) How do we do human better with one another? How do we understand what this meaning of white privilege, and I think this is, in, in our case, specific to America, we, we, we have to engage with that dialogue if we want to understand the privileges that we were just handed by virtue of skin color from the early days of America. One of the questions that came out of last week's um, session between you and Matt after American Heretics was about the idea of reparations. And the, the question was, what does a modern day reparations look like? After, after the Emancipation Proclamation, after the Civil War, America entered a period of Reconstruction. Josh is so much better at history than I am. But during Reconstruction, the freed slaves were promised 40 acres and a mule. And that promise was never fulfilled. Reconstruction was dismantled after Lincoln was shot. There there, there was was not an effort to reclaim any of the uh, tenets of that Reconstruction. So I, I love etymology, and I love the idea of what, or what words can mean. So I think about the word, just the root word re means to do again. Well, it was never done in the first place, right? So how do we just do it? We think about the word repair. The, the, the word has several different meanings, which I find beautiful. One is to give new life or energy to. We repair furniture, we repair cars, we repair old buildings. I think there's a tremendous call to us to repair relationships. That too is part of repairing. We, to, another meaning is to set straight or right, to restore by placing apart or putting together what is torn or broken, to make amends for, to pay compensation for, So it's the act of putting something in working order again. And in order to repair this relationship, we have to have an imagination about what it can be. 
be most beautiful gift to me of being human is that we have this imaginative symbolic awareness. We can create art, we can create, create poetry, we can create movies, we can create whole pictures just with words alone. So we have the imaginative capacity to repair relationships, to restore ourselves to one another. To me, that is exactly what God as a verb means, to restore ourselves to one another, to repair that thing between us. And I think the other thing that we have is this capacity for morality, a capacity to examine right from wrong, to examine justice, and then to act accordingly. I don't, I, we don't know that other species don't have this. We think maybe elephants have some capacity for grief and deep emotions. They're amazing creatures. When I was little, I wanted to be an elephant when I grew up. It didn't happen. How's it going? <laughs> Not great. Yeah. Well, can, can I interrupt Actually, you? Oh my gosh. So, yeah. uh, uh, yeah. choosing. Yeah. Yes. The, the reason I thought of this as a title is that it's all connected to this heretics business. Uh -huh. um, as we learned in watching the movie, and uh, I've taught this here, prior to the beginning of the fourth century, mm -hmm. there were a multitude of ways of being a follower of Jesus. These people were not called Christians everywhere. Um, there were Christian groups in the what we now call the Egyptian area, the, the desert area. There were Christian groups in, in, in Turkey. There were Christian groups in uh, what we now call Israel. Um, there were a lot of different ways that people had in these small communities, didn't have an internet, didn't have ways of connecting, of being Christian. And um, that was a choice. That was a choice that people made about what it meant to follow Jesus. Constantine said, no, you guys have got to get your act together. So one of the things that they did, as you heard in the movie, is that they locked all the church leaders in a place and, and, and wouldn't let them out to have food until they came up with an agreement. And when they did, they called everybody who didn't agree with them heretics. And it was just the Christian thing to do to go kill these people. Now, the same thing happened in the writing of the scriptures. There were a lot of scriptures available. We now know this. We have many of them now that didn't make it into the Christian canon, but we now have them. Gospel of Thomas was one. Uh, there's the Gospel of Mary. You can look at any of the Bart Ehrman collection of lost scriptures. has many of these uh, collected in it. And, and they, were, they were not selected because... Um, they didn't fit the theology of the people who were making who were making the decisions. They were outside. They called it outside the line. <clears throat> and um, Elaine Pagels is the woman professor who was the first person I read about the Gospel of Thomas, who can document that Thomas the 
the, the character Thomas in the New Testament, the doubting Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, that that story was fabricated to throw, to cast aspersion on the collection of sayings that were attributed to his name. The church was just as political then as it is now. And money played just the role then that it does now. Rome had a lot of money. Rome had a lot of power. That's why the, the, the Catholic church, the universal church, got located in Rome. The Roman Catholic church. If Antioch had had the money and the power, it'd be called the Antioch Catholic <clears throat> church today. But that's not the way it went. Anybody who decided to be outside of that, who chose something different, was a heretic. The word heretic is connected to the word hero. They all have the same, mm -hmm. same root mm -hmm. in, in that sense. So it essentially means being willing to go against the flow, being willing to go against the status quo. Right. And this to choose that. And there's, I think, one of the, to get back to this issue of reparations, which is a hot topic right now, um, one of the choices we have is begins with acknowledgement. Just the simple acknowledgement that where there is a history of oppression in a country, that we have to reckon with it. That we, we have to reconcile. I, I would be willing to bet that most people do not keep any awareness of the fact when they talk about the Constitution, mm -hmm. that in the Constitution, slaves were not considered full human beings. They were granted three-quarter right. status right. as human beings. Mm -hmm. Not real persons, mm -hmm. not full humans. Mm -hmm. That's in our founding document. And it's, it's, it's a pervasive sentiment <laughs> as it carries over to even an immig the immigration crisis we're, we're experiencing today. Okay, so and th th think about this. Yeah. Theology or churchology mm -hmm. in the United States mm -hmm. was created by slaveholders. Mm -hmm. We have a slaveholder theology. Mm -hmm. and, and until 1950, until around 1950, all of the mainline Protestant churches in the United States were divided along the lines of South and North. The only church that has not really gotten back together is the Southern Baptist, which is the largest Protestant group in the United States. And they, they, they I'm, not, I'm Southern Baptist, so I'm not being critical about them, but they carry in their name, in their DNA, we're divided. That's part of the, that's part of the theology. And if you look at what goes on in the Southern Baptist Church to this day, it is a white, male-dominated organization, and they have a theology called complementary, mm -hmm. complement, complementarianism. complementarianism, which I tried to introduce into my marriage. <laughs> yes. It didn't go well. But you know what complementarianism means. It means that the wife does whatever her husband says. Yet another issue we need to address. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, I mean, you know, we, we, 
we are in the one of the great shadows. There are three shadows that, that run this country. And the, one of the greatest is the shadow of patriarchy. White male run the show. So there's other ideas I have about reparations. <laughs> I want to hear them. <laughs> and I and then you can come over later for marriage counseling okay. for us. And yeah. <laughs> I, you know, one of the ideas is about wealth equity. How do we, there was a statistic that I can't remember who shared this with me, but at a certain level, it, when, when we've established that over $50,000 in this country is above poverty, it's still not en enough for a large family to live on. But there was a statistic that said once a family reaches the, the level of just being able to make it, so getting out of poverty, that the happiness level goes up immensely between being in poverty and being able to get out of poverty. But between that $50,000 and let's just say $500,000 or $5 million a year, the happiness level doesn't go up exponentially. So in other words, you don't need more in order to be happier or to be joyful. So one of the things that we can look at is, is wealth equity and how do we do wealth. Some of these are complex, heady ideas that I don't have necessarily the financial savvy to explore on a, on a how to do it level. But I know that wealth equity needs to be looked at. The other thing is education equity. And my, my niece goes to um, William and Mary. And a lot of colleges that were founded before or during the era of um, slavery were built by slaves. Harvard just came out with its um, sort of act of reparations in terms of addressing its history and its building history. My niece, when I went to visit her, took me on a tour of how her college is addressing those inequities, where they're making signage, where they're honoring uh, the legacy and really trying to dismantle it and, and acknowledge that it is a piece of their history. So I, I, you know, just again, this acknowledgement of, of history is really important. You know, yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't quarrel with you yeah. about that at all, but it's always puzzled me because I'm not a good student of history, never have been, and uh, I complained about why do I have to study history? And the answer that I got was, if we don't study history, we study history so that we don't repeat it. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't work. We're repeating history right now. Just go look at cultures where there has been an enormous disparity between the 2 or 3% at the top and the rest, the, 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 the expendables at the bottom of the pyramid. Go look at those cultures and see how they played out in history. Not good. So it's, it just seems to me I've never understood why we don't put tremendous funding into public education because that's our future. That's our future. Our country is going to get the benefits or the lack of benefits of us not bringing online a healthy, smart generation of human beings. Mm -hmm. If we don't do that, we'll pay the price for that eventually. Oh, it doesn't seem to, to motiv motivate us. In 20 years, in 20 years, I'll still be teaching here. <laughs> but in 20 years, uh, I don't know. In, in 20 years, white people will not be the predominant population in the United States. 
And how's that, how's that going to play out if white guys are still making the rules? You're going to have a bunch of dissatisfied people. And what happens historically when those unsatisfied people figure out some way to express themselves? You have the French Revolution or something like it. That's not what we want. I'm going to show that Starling video based on... I don't understand that. that. I saw that. Are you yeah. going to talk about this line? Oh, I can for a minute. It's uh, this... this you wanted I love to, this. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good visual. The, another question that came up last week was, how do we truly make ordinary life more inclusive so we look like what we talk like? And I think the, there first has to be a distinction between understanding what diversity looks like and what inclusivity looks like. Diversity is quite easy. We can, there is diversity in this room. The diversity of experiences, there's a, some, a small bit of racial diversity, but d diversity you can have in, in any, our, our city is diverse. We're very proud of this fact that Houston is the most diverse city in the country as we understand it. But inclusion is different than diversity. Inclusion is about, is about having a seat at the table not being invited to the table because this person in charge asked you to be there. Just having a seat at the table. Inclusion is about honoring different viewpoints and different ways of life and different ways of seeing the world. This slide is um, a, a good visual representation of equality looks like handing the same size box to three people so they can all stand on the same size box. That's equality, treat everyone the same, right? Equity looks like giving people what they need. So the, the tall kid doesn't need a box. He can see over the fence without the box. The, mid, the medium height kid needs a shorter box. The, the short kid gets two of the boxes. That's equity, uh, giving people what they need to be able to see past uh, barriers. And then true liberation is the barriers are removed. The barriers to participation are removed. So. That's kind of an exciting and scary and hard question. How do we do liberation where the barriers for participation are removed? So that's, you know, that's a, it's a tough one. So yeah. before you show yeah. the Starling thing, which I want to uh, yeah. ask about. Go back. Um, that's okay. Um, In my teaching about uh, how relationships work, whether between two people or a larger group of people, uh, there are three things that have to happen in those relationships. One has to do with respect. Mm -hmm. I respect you as a, as a human being. And, and the second is um, a, a sen an experience of reciprocity in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think that that experience of reciprocity is idiosyncratic to the relationship itself. Um, somebody might look, for example, at the marriage that Sherry and I have and say that one of us does a lot more than the other. But that's irrelevant as long as within the context of the relationship, each of us feels like we're getting as much as we're giving and we're giving as much as we're getting. Right. And that's critical in all relationships Absolutely. that work. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is that we all are able, we're all empowered to have 100% responsibility for the well-being of the relationship. Mm -hmm. 
And I think one of the great misunderstandings that people have of, for example, again, marriage, is that it's a 50-50 proposition. It isn't. It's It's 100%. My marriage is 100% my responsibility. Mm -hmm. And Sherry's marriage is 100% her responsibility. And we, we have a responsibility, I think, to make sure that it stays that way by checking with each other mm-hmm. and, and talking. It gets complicated. Absolutely. Because somebody, when you say everybody has a place at the table, somebody is always in charge of how those rules get made up. Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. And in the relationships that function well, that experience of responsibility flows easily of, of leadership between people in the group, like on a basketball team. Mm-hmm. The ball goes back and forth between people easily. And when somebody screws up, they don't stop the game and criticize them and they pull them up, slap them on the butt and get them back in the game. That's right. So <laughs> somehow we have to figure out a way that people at the table can own leadership roles mm-hmm. and feel okay about it. Yes. Because if you have one person or one group that's always in charge, you're going to have unhappy people at the yes. table. Yeah. That makes sense? Yes, and I think some of that is also an agreement to honor people's strengths. Some, you know, if we are all choosing a position at the table, then part of the conversation, and um, Iconoclast does this well, I participate in Iconoclast, Curate does this well, it's a leaderful organization, so that just through the process of getting to know one another, we get to know each other's strengths, how we can best show up. This woman, actually, that I have read her book, Emergent Strategy, Adrienne Marie Brown, talks a lot about these sort of shared roles of leadership, shared roles in society, and how systems in society really mirror nature. A fractal is something that repeats at every, every size, right? So a succulent is an example of a fractal. Societies work this way too. So if we can sort of fractalize society where we create a system that's healthy, that's working well, that that can be recreated and imagined as the community needs it. So this community will operate different than another community, but it may be able to repeat pieces of it. This idea of, and I'll just let this play behind me because it doesn't require sound, of Starlings, the way that starlings uh, murmur, a murmuration of starlings is poetic. I mean, this is just visual poetry, right? The way that they are able to keep each other safe is that every starling is responsible to seven starlings to its left and seven starlings to its right. Who figured that out? The starling experts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the starlings figured it out, Bill. We just observed. <laughs> but this idea that the starlings are in constant touch with what's going on on either side of them. So as one moves a little bit more up, the seven to the left kind of move a little bit more up. And it's not linear. And it's a little bit chaotic. But it's in motion in synchrony, and it's synchronistic. And this idea that in social movements, we can also work like that. What do these seven people to my left need to sort of be at the table? What do these seven people to my right? And in this way, every single starling, every single person is accounted for. So if you look down your row, 
Some of you are on the ends, but you've got seven people around you. How can we better move in synchrony with, with the people who are around us? This is, gets back to the relationship theory. How so do we do that? Every, every starling mm -hmm. thinks of seven to the left and seven to the right. So the starling that is third from me is thinking about seven from his or her left, and they all do yeah, that. Yeah, so it's this fractal that keeps repeating at every level. Poor birds, how do they ever land? They're exhausted. That's how they do, they fall out of the sky. But this, this, this movement of starlings keeps them from being eaten by the peregrine fal fal falcon. The falcon can't easily dive into the swarm and grab one of them because there's seven more. They're like, uh-uh, I gotcha, you know, that swarm to the, to the peregrine falcon. So that's cool. Mm -hmm. And that's really cool. And uh, that is exactly, I started with Shane Claiborne, and I will end, I'm not going to talk about him again, but the, that is exactly how the Jesus movement got started and got its strength. Yeah. Is that people came together to share to take care of each other in small communities. Um, and, and out of that grew this incredible sense of joy mm -hmm. and love and acceptance and fearlessness. These people were not afraid. And they lived the values that they had gotten from this Jewish mystic mm -hmm. about being nonviolent and about being generous and about living simple lives. And um, we have moved pretty far from that. Yeah. I, I think if I take what you're saying seriously, I'm going to have to give up on my airplane. You at least have to invite seven people to your left and seven people <laughs> to your right to fly in your airplane with you. Okay. Yeah. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. You have anyway. any more seconds? No. No. You going to talk about that? I can. Okay. You know, we know this painting. Okay. So we, we, we have to go, but just to close oh my this gosh. idea of, um, of, of the image of God, right? Who is the image of God? This is Michelangelo's creation of Adam that's on the, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I've stood under it. It's, it is beautiful. And this was the image of God for so long. White guy in the sky. Contemporary painter, a black woman, Africa Harmonia Rosales repainted this image. This too is the image of God. God is everywhere. Yeah. Well, I won't talk about this. I started putting this in the. I won't talk about it, but I will. I want to <laughs> talk. I, I, won't, I won't go into into it. Yeah. But uh, this is um, a piece of art that I encountered in the last two weeks about liberation theology. And you notice that on, on one side is the whole Moses story of liberating people, freedom. On the, on the right side is the racial issue of people um, who are prominent, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and other people who are leading people out of bondage as well. In that. And in the center is Jesus coming out of the, the tomb. We need to talk about resurrection in here some more sometime. Mm -hmm. about doing that. We, we need more time. Yeah. So we'll teach again together. And I, I don't think we did this topic justice, but we need to come back Way and talk about this. It, it is it's a huge thing it. yeah. about 
reparations and and uh, diversity and and inclusion. So what you can do out of what Holly and I have talked about today is to uh, just notice, just notice where um, racial inequality shows up in your life and your experience in the culture. Don't try to do anything now, just notice. And, and um, notice the kind of ways that people talk about others, the judgments that they make. Um, I think Jane Nelson's question is just so brilliant. Um, would you be willing to be treated the way a black person is treated in this culture? And if not, why? And where does that show up? What do you notice? Then between the noticing and the responses that we make, there's this chance to choose something different, to make another choice. And when you do that, you're really practicing being heretical. Mm -hmm. So we grow a good group of heretics out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> People who make other choices, because if we keep choosing what we're choosing now, it's not good for the culture out there. And my faith, as naive as it may sound, is that you and I can make a huge difference in that out there by the choices we make on a regular basis. I believe that, or I wouldn't do what I do. So Matt and I will be here in 10 minutes. Uh, thank you, Holly, very much. Um, I love doing this with yeah, you. Yeah, fun. You. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step, and we'll, I'll see you here in five minutes. <laughs> yeah. John was our timekeeper.